0: You know that the concept of going out of Mitzrayim, going out of Egypt, is essentially a concept of leaving the constraints or the straits of a state of mind. You know that the Torah is always talking primarily about the spiritual journey. In other words, the, the fact that there is a physical journey that the Jewish people become a people in the, in the physical sense, and that there's a uh, <coughs> beginning of that historic process, <coughs> that obviously is the simple meaning of the words. But the Torah always is always talking at a level that is far beyond the practical or technical meaning of the words. The primary journey that the Torah describes always is the spiritual journey. If it talks about freedom... It's talking primarily about... Again, when I say primarily, you should never misunderstand. The words always mean what they say literally. That is always what we call pshat. The, the, the so-called simple or, or technically practical level. But the, the essence or the point of the exercise, the point of Torah, is to, is to put the spiritual dimension, a deeper dimension, into that, to that physical or historical process. And therefore... It's, it's critical to understand that Yitzhak Mitzrayim going out of Egypt is a process of, of inner growth. It's, a journey towards, it's the journey of the Jewish people towards themselves as a, as a spiritual people. A journey That's a journey in essence. That's, that's the primary thing that has to be understood. It would be a travesty of Torah to understand that the events are simply historic and national events. That wouldn't make us any different than anybody else, and it wouldn't have any real bearing on the history of the world the significance of the Jewish people lies in the level that's beneath <coughs> the historical and practical and national events. I mean, that should be plain to anybody who has any interest in Torah. And therefore, the Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, the going out of Egypt, really means breaking the bonds of a, of a state of mind or a set of values. <coughs> let's, try to, let's try to examine this. I'd like to look at just one of those values, <coughs> which is the concept of freedom itself and see what exactly is meant by freedom from a, from a Torah perspective. You know that the... There's a lot to talk about here. You know that Pesach parallels Rosh Hashanah. You know, the Gemara says there are two times Rosh Hashanah. One is in Tishrei, that is when the... That's Rosh Hashanah itself. Another is Pesach, which is this one, which is this Rosh Hashanah. The difference is that in Rosh Hashanah, on, in Tishrei, we celebrate the formation of the, of the unique human being. That is the time of the formation of the human being. Man, man and woman were created then... That's why they stand in judgment, as it were, on that day. It's like a moment of new creation, new formation. It's the formation of the human at an individual level. Pesach is exactly the same process of new formation. It's also a new year. <coughs> it takes place in the spring. It's a time of. Uh, it, it, it's explicitly referred to as a new year, but it's a new year for the Jewish people as a nation. What happened at Rosh Hashanah for the individual, what happens at Rosh Hashanah for the individual, is happening at Pesach in Nissan. For the Jewish people as a nation. The birth that takes place for the individual at Intishray is taking place for the Jewish people. And therefore, the values and the transition of values that we go through <coughs> at uh, Pesach time, those have to be the national values, the, the, the inner <coughs> spiritual values of the Jewish nation. <coughs> now, this is all obvious to you, right? Anyone out there? You know that the tried to touch on this a little bit yesterday. The word mitzraim really means constraints. You know, meitzarim in Hebrew means meitzar means a a constraint or, or something that holds you know, that squeezes a thing into a narrow into a narrow place. That's what that's what the word meitzarim actually on a deeper level. Without going into a lot of detail, mitzraim really spells meitzar which means the constraint of the fiftieth. Yud mem in Hebrew is fifty. Fifty in Hebrew, fifty in Torah is always that which goes beyond which transcends the natural order. That's why the 49 days of Suresa Emeh. And the 50th is the transcendent day of Torah, which is Shwurz. It's the reason that we don't count the 50th day. You know that the Torah says, Tespuru Hamishim Yom, count 50 days. But when we get to Shwurz, we don't stand up on that night and count the day as 50. Even though the Torah explicitly commands that day to be counted, we don't do that. And the reason is because in Torah, 50 is not a number that is like 49 or 48 or 47. The, the concept is that 50 is that which is beyond the numbers. It has no. If you stood up and counted it, you'd be giving it a finite number just like any of the others. You'd be destroying the concept of what 50 is. 50 is always that which goes. 49 is always the concept of measure. Measurement is always 49. There's seven steps in the world. There's seven elements of seven in the world, which is the 49 steps. In fact, the word midah in Hebrew adds up to 49. The word midah, which means a measure, is 49. That's why the, that's why the Torah itself says that the Torah's measure is longer, right? It's arukah Eretz midah. The Torah is longer than midah. It's longer than the concept of measurement. It means longer than 49. It's in the 50th. Now, the 50th is always called that gate of wisdom, which is beyond any measure. And therefore, the 49 days of Sreya Sa'emer are the work that is done in the finite and tangible world. And the 50th breaks the bonds and goes out into another world. So that the process of Yitzhiya Yitzhi Mitzrayim is the breaking of the metzaryam, Egypt is that which constrains the fiftieth. That's what Mitzrayim is in their physicality and their contamination, their immorality. That's what they are. They live entirely within the physical. <coughs> the sources even say that that um, even the, the focus of of what would be spirituality in Egypt, in other words, their sense of their sense of their false sense of kedusha, is the Nile. The Nile is a. The, they worship the Nile. The reason being that the way their country is watered <coughs> is that the Nile overflows. <coughs> and it's Kagan HaYarak, it says. That's what the Torah calls it. Egypt is Vishkita Beraglicha Kagan HaYarak. Your land is watered with your legs right? as a garden that is a verdant garden. Egypt's described that way because it never rains. It doesn't rain there. The Nile waters the land and, and, that, and they never have to look upwards. The whole concept of looking up for rain is that there's a relationship with Hashem. Rain is the one natural cycle that's unpredictable. You know, the best scientific uh, predictive methods in the world are completely unable to predict if it's going to be a dry year or not, or when the rain will fall. It's always something that needs to be, needs to turn upwards and ask for it. The first thing that Adam did was perceive that there was no rain, and he doubted for it. And that's how the rain came down. It's no accident that in Hebrew, the word Geshem, again, I see a couple of Israelis here, you know that the word Geshem, which means rain, you're so used to hearing Geshem, mini rain, you don't realize that Geshem really means Gashmi. Anything anything of Gashmiot, anything of anything in the tangible world derives from the rain. Right? Because it's the point that has to be looked up and asked for. Egypt doesn't have that. It's dissociated from the higher world. When we go out of there, we go out from the world of the constraints of physicality and the importance of ourselves into the dimension of a relationship with the higher world. There's one particular... I mean, we could go on and on for hours about this, but This is the basic concept of Yetzirah Mitzrayim. It is going out of Egypt. The first night of Pesach, you can reach any level. There's no limitation. In fact, especially ladies have to remember that because often often the only thing a lady reaches on the first night of Pesach is keeping her nose out of the soup because she's so tired. That's not what it should be. You should be, and of course none of you will do that. You'll all be prepared so far ahead of time that you'll be absolutely raved up on the first night and you'll be totally wide awake and, with it. And that's what you should be, because the first night of Pesach, you can have a free gift of anything you want. You know, the, 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 the deeper sources all say that on that night, well, anything you want is yours. Hashem makes it available. There's no work that's necessary. It's a completely free gift. It's a totally protected night. You don't have to say the of protection. You don't have to lock your door. It's, 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 it's a night when Hashem took us out of Egypt, even though we had nothing going for us at all. And therefore, every year that, at that time, you can have whatever you want. Absolutely anything you want, any level you want, all you have to do is put yourself there, <coughs> and on the first night of Pesach you can have it. There is a catch, of course. The catch is that for the next forty-nine days you have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to work in proportion to what it is that you took on. You can't. It's not a free gift that remains a free gift. The whole concept of whole concept of Pesach is that Hashem does it for us for free on the first night, and then for the next the rest of the forty-nine stages we have to earn it ourselves and live up to it. But the point is, Pesach means leaping over. Piseach, Rat Lipsach in Hebrew means to jump over levels. So instead of going through the normal stages that the normal way of spiritual growth, on Pesach you can leap into that level without any, without going through any stages. Then when you when you come down out of it, then you've got to keep your, your then you've got to show that you deserve it by doing the work that's necessary to stay there. But the point is that that, that, that will be made possible. It will have been made possible by having leapt there, and therefore it pays to be, it pays to be awake. In fact, in the without going into too much detail, in the deeper sources, it says that unlike other nights when we when we dove in mari, first night of Pesach, nothing happens in the spiritual world. You know that? Other nights of the year when we dove in Marib, we build certain things in the higher worlds. Exactly how it works, no, this is not the time for. But we build certain energies and certain combinations of things in the higher worlds, and then they have an effect on the world. First night of Pesach, we don't have to do that. In fact, it's written clearly that the first night of Pesach, we don't really have to dove in Marib, because Because what's happening in the higher world <coughs> happens by itself. The question is, why do we daven Maariv on Pesach first night? The answer is putting yourself in touch with what's happening anyway. You want to be, you want to be part of it. No, on other nights when you daven Maariv, you make a wave that a, a like a tidal wave that is um, that we that we motivate and we, we we produce on Pesach. The wave is happening from Hashem because it's a night when it's a night when He does everything. The reason that we stand up in Dov and daven Maariv on on first night of Pesach is because we want to ride the wave. But we want to make ourselves relevant to it. We want to, instead of producing it like other nights, we want to, we want to, we, 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 we want to catch it and ride that way. That's why this night is d- different than all other nights. The real difference between this night and all other nights is that all other nights of the year we have to do some work in the darkness. And the first night of Pesach is a night where the darkness becomes light and we don't have to do any work. In fact, halachically, it's got the din of a day. Not the day, but not the din of a night. Now, in this blaze in this of revelation, that is the, the breaking of the bonds of, of Mitzrayim. Each of the values that the world holds dear, we are breaking. That is such an important thing to understand. The, the values of the secular world, and it couldn't be, couldn't be heavier and darker than it is in this generation. They, they subscribe to values that are the opposite of what Torah values are. And we have to, that the, the real breaking the bonds of the Egypt that you live in is coming to see that the values that they, that they live by Our values are the opposite. It's a a fundamental thing to understand. Not not only because intellectually you have to break those bonds, but in the the very mechanisms of your mind, we think like non-Jews. We think exile the exile that we live in, which was the prototype of all exile, is what Egypt was. The exile that we live in is a state of mind. It's not just the fact that you're not living in Israel. wherever you live, including living in Israel today. You're living in an exiled state of mind. You have a set of values that are the opposite to what real Torah values are and therefore and therefore it takes a tremendous effort to to break the bonds of those values and understand correctly. And perhaps the primary one to understand is the concept of freedom. So let's spend a few minutes and try to define what is our what is our concept. You don't mind if I sit under you. <laughs> What is our concept of what's our concept of, of freedom and and what is theirs? And the paradox is that our concept of freedom really is what they would call obligation. That means that we have the opposite sense of what it means to be free. Let's, let's, try to, let's try to understand this. Perhaps the best way to approach it is like this. There are many angles that you can approach it from, but perhaps a, a clear one is this. You know that... You know that every freedom... Let's put it this way. Let's go to the root. Rav says that there are two modes of human interaction in the world. Giving and taking. Right? You are either a giver or a taker. In every interaction between two people, husband and wife, or friends, or there is any interaction is a, giving, is a giving and a taking. The one is giving, the other one is taking. Of course, it isn't always the transfer of an object in the direction that, that is obvious. Sometimes when I take something from you, I'm actually allowing you the gift. I'm giving you the gift of being able to give that thing to me. Right? Yes? <coughs> so, one of the biggest gifts in marriage is the gift of giving one's partner the opportunity to be a giver. I mean, it's very complex. But at the end, at the end of the day, someone is giving and someone is receiving, or it could be that, that both, it's going in both directions. But human actions involve giving and a taking. What, and that, that's a wonderful subject, and he develops it fully, and it's a classic subject in, Torah, in modern Torah thinking. However... What's important to see is that giving and taking are parallel to rights and obligations, right? To the freedoms or the rights that you have and the obligations where you're constrained. Obligation means that you have to do something, you can't do what you want. You're constrained there, you're not free. Let's try and, let's try and work that out. Rights, but in social theory, you have the concept that every right that someone has in society is someone else's obligation. For example, my right to free speech is the obligation of society, of government and society not to interfere with what I want to say. My rights to my property, for example, are basically your obligations not to steal or interfere with my property. Can you see that? Every right that that one party has is someone else's obligation. In marriage, right? if I have a right to certain things, so that it's your obligation in, in the interpersonal dimension of our relationship, it's your obligation to provide them. Anybody's right translates into the other party's obligation. Now, step two. Can you see that rights are parallel to the concept of taking and obligations are parallel to the element of giving? Can you see that? My rights are due to me. That means that society owes them to me. It's something that I claim and I want to take. Obligations are really where, where you have to give. Your, the side of your obligations are where you constrain. You can't do whatever you want to. You have to provide that for the other person. Is this, is this clear? So in the social contract, rights and obligations are translating into giving and taking. The pure spiritual position is to be a giver and not a taker. What, you want, what we want to achieve is to become givers and not takers. The reason is, of course, that Hashem is only a giver. And if you want to be similar to Him, then you have to be a giver and not a taker. He cannot be a taker. Since He lacks nothing, there is nothing that He can take from you. He can only give. And therefore, if you want to be similar to Hashem, which is the primary sort of source of mitzvahs, then in order to be like Him, you have to be a giver and not a taker. That's why it says, Somebody who hates gifts is alive. Somebody who loves gifts is not alive. Somebody who loves gifts, that means they want to live only on what they receive from elsewhere. They're not spiritually similar to Hashem. They're on the far distant end of the spectrum from what Hashem is. Somebody who wants to give all the time, that is a person who is truly similar to Hashem. And therefore, in order to become spiritual, to become like Hashem, you have to become a giver, not a taker. If you focus on rights as opposed to obligations... So you're setting yourself up as being a person who needs and deserves and wants things. If you set up the primary focus being obligations, then you're focusing on being a giver, taking care of other people's rights. Now, what's absolutely wonderful to understand is that in the social contracts of the nations, in all the Western democracies, they, ver- they talk virtually only about rights. When they phrase the rights-obligations system, they phrase it as, they focus on the, on the end of the spectrum, the end of the deal, that is the, the rights end. Look in, you look, they've got bill, a bill of rights. They don't have a bill of obligations. They have a bill of rights. Their, their constitutions, read through the constitution of any Western democracy, you'll see that it's basically a long list of the rights. Rights of individuals and rights of minorities and rights of this one and rights of that one. Of course the rights imply obligations, but what's fascinating is they focus on the, on the rights end, not the obligations end. In the Torah, it never mentions rights ever. Know that? Do you know that the Torah, our manifesto, our constitution, never mentions rights ever? You can look through the Torah from the beginning to the end; it never mentions anybody's rights. It only mentions obligations. In the oral law, in the Torah Pair, it discusses rights all the time. Of course, you have rights. But the interesting thing is that when the, when, when Judaism phrases its version of the correct social contract it phrases only the obligation end and not the rights the Torah is an obligation from beginning to end you're not allowed to do this and this and this and this and you have to do the following it's one big obligation one word that sums up the whole Torah is Chov, Chov means you're obliged Of of course when the Torah commands me not to steal it's protecting your right to your property of course it's doing that, but it's not focusing on that it's focusing on my, is this clear? The, the output of Torah, if you live the Torah concept correctly, you become a giver. You become concerned with other people's rights and concerned with your obligations. Rav used to point out that the Midrash says, you know, what difference, okay, now you may ask the question, what difference does it make which end of the spectrum you focus on? Who cares on whether you focus on his rights or my obligations? At the end of the day, as long as the, as long as the interactions correct, as long as he has his rights protected and I take care of my obligations, what's the difference which end I focus on? Oh, there's a massive difference, a massive difference. For example, the example he used to give was, you know, according to Torah, you're allowed to own a slave. You're allowed to own a slave. Huh? Of course, it's not recommended, because if you have a slave, you're in real trouble. The Gemara says, if you own a slave and there's only one bed, he sleeps in it, not you. There's only one pillow, he gets it, not you. You yeah, know, this is not slavery like, you know, so it's not simple. But let's say you have a slave. So the Medrash says that a person has to treat his slave like his brother. And a slave has to work for his master like a slave. So imagine the slave is working correctly, focusing on working like a slave, and the master is focusing on treating him like his brother. It's a fantastic relationship. What happens one day when the slave comes to his master and says to him, you should be treating me like your brother. And he says to him, what are you talking about? You should be working like a slave. What's happening? They're both focusing on the other one's obligations, and you have war, you have strife, even though they're both quoting the Torah, they're both right. But they're focusing on the right. What happens in a marriage if each person is concentrating on only giving to the other one and making the other one happy? well it's marvelous, it's blissful but what happens in a marriage when each one says why aren't you making me happy, and the other one says no, you're supposed to be making me, they're both right of course but they're quoting the wrong end of the deal and then you have war what happens in a society where the workers instead of working loyally, they start uh, worrying about what the, what the employer has to give them, so you know what happens, they make a union because they're not strong enough to get out of the employer what they want so they make a union, and then they got power, now the employer makes the National Association of Employers because they've got to fight the unions you've got civil war in a society that concerns itself with its rights, and in secular Western society, that's what they teach. They say, My boy, you get out there, you don't let anybody trample on you, you stand up. That's what every father teaches his son in the Western world. You get out there, you don't let anybody trample on you, you stand up for your rights, you take no nonsense, you beat them down, that's what you do. Get out there and pound them. Fine. So they end up with a society where everybody's anxious about his rights and he wants to carve it out for himself, and marriage is a wreck, and, 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 and there's nothing left. There's nothing left. They're all saying correctly, they're all saying right. But they're focusing on the wrong end of the deal. To be a man, you have to focus on your obligations. If we all focus on our obligations, the rights will take care of themselves. If nobody steals, you, you don't have to worry about your rights to your property. Your property is going to be fine. The secret of society. The secret, you know, the world's in a tremendous mess, in case you haven't noticed. A tremendous mess. There's butchery going on and brutality and indescribable horrors. Do you know people have died in Africa in the last year? innumerable, you know, tribes have been wiped out. Do you know, people, that are not even reported anymore. Do you know that? You've got no idea. Do you know in the last ten years how many millions of people have been slaughtered? The numbers are, they're not even reported anymore. Ten thousand people get wiped out and dump, their bodies dumped in Lake Tanganyika. They're not even reported. The world's, you know what the secret is? It's not a political system. There's no political system that will solve the problem. It's not socialism or communism or capitalism. That's all ridiculous, no matter what system you have. If the individuals in the system are focusing on what they're going to get out of it, no system is going to work. But if the individuals in the system are focusing on what they owe, then almost any system is good enough. It doesn't matter what the name of the system is. They're all all reasonable. It's not a a problem. Judaism doesn't posit a specific social or or, or, um, economic philosophy. That's not really relevant. What's relevant is, as long as each person makes sure they, give, they put out into the system at, le- at least what they're obligated to do. It makes no difference when you can live on a kibbutz, you can have a communist thing, you can have a capital. It makes no difference. As long as you're taking care of your obligations, you'll be okay. The secret of Judaism and Jewish education is to bring up a child who focuses on what he's obliged to do. The catch is, of course, that if you bring up a child like that in a world like this, he'll be eaten alive. If you bring up a child with a soft, sensitive awareness of what he has to give, and you bring up, you know, in a, in, a, in a ballistic world like this, the child will be eaten alive. And therefore the Jewish approach is, we try to bring up children who have a soft, gentle, absolutely open and honest, unthreatened core of giving, in a very tough shell. In a very shrewd and tough shell. That's the Jewish personality. The Jewish person, the child has to know that the Torah, Yaakov Avinu was a ishtam. Ishtam, it even, the, the word tam even verges on the concept of naive. Of course he wasn't naive. But tam really means absolutely pristine pure. But when he had to deal with a lovan, when he had to deal with lovan, he knew exactly how to be crooked. Crooked, cro- crooked according to all the rules of straightness of the Torah. If you do, Is this clear? A, a Jewish child has to grow up with a schizoid awareness. Now that's what maturity means. The schizoid awareness that inside he has to be Pure an absolutely unconditional giving, where it's appropriate. Where it's not appropriate, you have to have a shell of defense against a, against a lethal world. <coughs> example, it says, a, example, pick of a It says, <speaking in Hebrew> Which means, make yourself a Rebbe, you need a Rebbe, You need a friend. Acquire a friend with good deeds and friendship. And then judge everyone favorably, which basically means in English, give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Somebody did something that doesn't look so good, give them the benefit of the doubt. It's probably okay. The obvious question on this mission is, what do those three things have to do with each other? You've got to make a Rebbe to teach you. You've got to make a very close friend because you need a very close friend. And then judge everybody leniently. You know, give everyone the benefit of the doubt. What on earth does ha- having, what on earth does making a, a, a teacher and a friend, what do they have to do with judging, giving people the benefit of the doubt? But the answer is beautiful. The answer is when you make a Rebbe for yourself, when you choose who's going to be your Rebbe, and you choose who's going to be your close friend, really close to you, choose people that you don't have to give the benefit of the doubt. Choose people that are beyond any excuses needing to be made for them. Choose people who stand up to the highest level of scrutiny. Those are the people that you bring close to you, and those are the people you give your trust to. Everybody else you can afford to judge favorably and give the benefit of the doubt. Everybody else out there, you can be very large and give them the benefit of the doubt, and it's all fine. Assume that they're probably meant well, but that's not the people that should be your rabbi and your friend. In the close int- are you with me? In the close intimacy, you choose a relationship where you can give yourself in a, in a, vulnerable, in a vulnerable and total way. Because that's what your core should be. And in the inner sanctum of your marriage and your relationships and your home, that's where the child should learn to do that. But out in the streets, where they're going to eat him alive, he has to be a very shrewd child. Once, the Chazanesh, the (laughs) Chazanesh, the Chazanesh once had someone, who had to go to, uh, who it was is not important, but a a well-known member of the Israeli political system. We're not going to go into details now. It's not a political talk. But the, one of the anti-religious members of the Israeli political system. And the debate then was about girls in the army. It was a very, very bitter time. Very bitter time. Ish sent a man to go and say something to this politician who is violently anti-religious and a very problematic individual. He gave him instructions to go and speak to this individual and tell him something that would in this desperate battle for the, for the, for the, for the status of the Torah observant community in Israel. As the man was about to leave the room, the chazanesh said to him, and by the way, when you go and see him, don't take your normal route. Don't take your normal route. Instead of going the way you would have gone, I want you to take certain back streets and certain back alleys. And I want you to And he told him not only to take a devious route, he told him which route to take. He told him which back alleys to take in order to get to see this politician. So the man didn't know what was going on, but he did it. In the deepest, darkest back alley, he met that individual who was taking that route in order to escape him <laughs> this, this character was trying to avoid him So the chazanish not only knew that he would do it he knew which route he would take that means somebody of Torah greatness right, who has that absolutely pure core of, of love and, and concern for the Jewish people but he has to deal with the devious he has to be devious That's not, it's not the core but it has to be on the outside it's necessary unfortunately in a world like this it's necessary the core of the personality has to be, and how do you teach children that? It's not simple. It's not simple. In the early years, they have to be given only the, the pureness, the, the purity, and the, and the giving in the sense of obligation. Even from the earliest years, they have to be given a sense of obligation. And later, there has to be a sense of rights as well, of course. But it has to, be, there has to be the proportions. have to be correct. The priorities have to be correct. The concept of Torah is a concept of obligation, The concept of the Western world is the concept of freedom. We understand that our freedom is in Torah. Only a slave to the truth is really free. Freedom is not just moving in any direction. Freedom means being able to move in in the directions that are true. Being able to move in directions that are false doesn't mean freedom. It's just fooling yourself. In order to be really free, you have to learn the ultimate constraints of the truth. You know, the truth... If I ask you the solution to a mathematical problem, the true answer is only one. The false answers are as many as you like. You, can you see this? <laughs> Truth is a tremendous constraint. The true solution, the right thing to do in a situation, may be extremely limited, there may be only one. The wrong way to behave in a situation, the wrong answer to a problem, is as many as you want. So the illusion of freedom is that you just do whatever you want to. But one second, but is it right? Is it true? No, we're not interested in that. We're interested in freedom. (laughs) Well, that's not freedom. That's just illusion. The concept of freedom is only meaningful after you know how how to... Yes? The paradox of going out of Egypt is that you're going out into freedom. But in truth, you're going out from a place where anything goes... Into a place where only the truth goes. Can you see the paradox? It's a remarkable thing. It takes tremendous maturity to see. And the immaturity says, I don't want to be constrained into only one thing. I want to give any answer. Oh, you want to give the wrong ones? I don't care. I just want to give any answer. I want to be be free to give any answer to the problem. Just one second. Aren't you just in the right answer? No, because that limits me. That means only one. Yeah, but that's the true one. Is this point 10? Let me show you. Just let's go through this. Let's try and think it out on many levels. In education, for example, with children. With children. Can you see that in order to approach the truth, in order to deal with the truth, you need a disciplined mind? A structured mind. You need a structured mind. A mind that is structured, that means disciplined, that can put things in order and think logically. It's a mind that knows constraints. The paradox of a powerful mind is that it may be incredibly creative, but it, it has a formal structure. The basis for a formal structure in the mind is a controlled personality. When a child knows the meaning of discipline, when the child knows that there are certain limitations, you can't go beyond this point and beyond this point, you're not limiting their freedom; you're giving them freedom. Why? Because when a child knows that there's constraints, when the world is organized and ordered. It drives inward and gives an organized and ordered mind an organized and ordered mind is the prerequisite for being able to think in truth a, a disorganized mind that, that thinks that anything's acceptable is, a, is, a, is wild and, and disorganized but it's not dealing with the truth can you see the paradox in order to be able to handle the truth and be really creative creative means be able to go any place that's true so any place that's true has certain constraints the first Principle in getting those formal structures into the mind is, is, is disciplined behavior. The second step is that the disciplined behavior has to drive inwards into a concept of, of disciplined thinking. The paradox is you don't want to make, of course, you're not looking to make the disciplined thinking so constrained that there's, no, that there's no degrees of freedom, of course. You want tremendous creativity, but the creativity has to always go in pathways that are true. There's no point in being tremendously creative if it takes you into falsehood. It's a tremendous paradox. The beauty, of course, is that Hashem gives children the ability to do this. Children are creatures of the rules, you know that? Children are creatures of the rules. Children, when rules are set up for children, they're done correctly. Children thrive in a system of rules. They push you always to the limit of the rules. No 8 year old ever comes up and says, you know mom, it's 8.30 at night, I think I'll more or less go to bed now because, you know, it's getting late. No, that's not the way they do it. No matter what the bedtime is, no matter what the bedtime is, no matter how exhausted they are, they're going to try and push you to the absolute limit. That's how they are. But they thrive on the fact that when it does come, the rules are there, they're enforced. It gives them a tremendous sense of security. And it drives inward as a sense of intellectual security. You can use it even in bizarre circumstances. I know of a teacher who is teaching in a... In a, in a school in... Is it a school in Israel. Disturbed children. Very disturbed children. And the classroom was on the third floor. And one child tried to jump out the window. They're talking about very disturbed children. The child climbed up in the window. And he was about to jump out from the third floor. And the teacher couldn't get to him in time. She was in the back, you know, front of the classroom. The child climbed up in the back window. She couldn't cross the classroom in time to get to the child. So this was a gifted teacher who really understood children. So she said to the child... You can't do that, you don't have a pet from the menahel. you got you don't have a note from the principal. Oh, the child climbed down. He didn't know you needed a petek for that. He down and he sat down, you know. So, <laughs> so beautiful. And by the time the child realised where he was, you know, she closed the window and she said there's rules, you know. See the child's too small, they don't you know, they say, there's rules. Like, why is that? That's the rule in this house. Oh, ah, okay, no, this is a rule in this house. When they get older, they'll ask you, like, who, who made up those rules? <laughs> okay, fine, that's when they get older, when they're small, like, those are the rules. From the earliest age, right, Pesach, the Pesach said for the children. From the earliest age, it's a concept of a sense of obligation, which is a sense of limitations. We're not talking about a sense of, of beating down freedom and creativity. On the contrary, that's where it lives. That's the first paradox to understand. The Western world's concept is freedom. Anything goes. What's the problem? There are virtually no limits. The only limits are possibly if you're going to hurt somebody else. And even that's debatable these days. Maximum expression of freedom. That's the Western value. That's not the Torah value. The Torah value is what's right and true. We want to give you the tools to be able to discover that. Only a slave to the truth is free. Let's take the next step. Can we do this? Can we move on? How was the Torah given? Yitzhak Mitzrayim was breaking under the bonds of Egypt, and it ended fifty days later at the ultimate expression of freedom, which is giving of the Torah. How was the Torah given? Like, listen, stay with me carefully. So, the Torah was given like this: Hashem said to the Jewish people, "Would you like it?" Completely open-ended, right? You want the Torah? So, the Jewish people said, "Nasev Nishma." Nas means we'll take it sight unseen. We'll take it, then we'll hear what it involves. Right? The great, famous, central statement of the Jewish people. First. We accept. Whatever it is. Whatever you say it must be right. We'll take it on. Then we'll hear what it is. So they accepted it voluntarily. They accepted it voluntarily. Hashem said, do you want it? He went to all the nations. You know, the Medrash says Hashem went to all the nations and he said to them, do you want the Torah? So each nation said, well, what's in it? So he went to the people who who were steeped in immorality and he said to them, do you want the Torah? They said, what's in it? He said, well, you're not allowed to commit adultery and this and that. So they said, well, you know, that's our national pastime and this and that and the other and well, no thanks. So Hashem went on to another nation who were very violent, and he said, is it not allowed to kill, and you can't be brutal? They said, well, you know, we live by the sword, and no thanks. And then he came to the Jewish people, and he said to them, do you want the Torah? Now, the Jewish people, more than anybody on earth, would have loved to ask what's in it. The Jewish people are very, very critical, intellectual, got their own opinions. And they said, whatever it says, now say And they were given the Torah. The obvious question is, many questions. One question is, why did they each asked what was in it. And Hashem did something very unfair. He did something very unfair. When each nation asked what was in the Torah, He gave each one a different answer, and the worst possible one for each nation. That's not fair. The people ask what's in the Torah. They, offer, they, they genuinely want to know. You want us to get into a contract. Excuse me, what's in this contract? So he, he tells them only one thing. Which thing? The very worst thing for them. The thing that He knows is going to make it important... Well, that's not fair. But the answer is like this. What the Medish means is, Hashem came to each nation and He said... Do you want the Torah? As soon as they said what's in it, they failed the test. Because what do you mean what's in it? You mean it's going to be your judgment? You mean you're going to set this up against, against your concept of what's right and just? You're going to make it? Of course you're going to see the thing that, ob, that obstructs your particular uh, imi- Hashem showed them the whole Torah. He didn't only show them the thing was difficult for them. They said, what's in it? He showed them what's in it. But obviously the sticking point for each nation was the personal problem that they had. The mistake wasn't... The mistake was when you're going to ask what's in the Torah in order to decide whether you're going to take it on, so you're setting yourself up as the primary source of judgment and He has to meet up to your standards. I was at a shir a few nights ago and I, I explained some point to a lady. A lady said, I don't think it should be that way. I think, I think, I think he was being unfair. I think Hashem was being... Being unfair? I said, he's the definition of what's right and fair, right? No, I don't think so. I think, if you come from a perspective where the absolute total source of all all judgment is you, then (laughs) there's no... So each nation said, what's in it? And they heard, the Jewish people said like this, we'd love to ask him what's in it. We're going to get into an eternal contract over here? Who knows what this is going to mean? But you have to realize, if he says it, by definition it's right. You're talking about the absolute source of existence. If Whatever he says by definition must be right, even if to us it looks bizarre. it's got a And therefore, the longing to ask what was in it, and apply their intellectual critical faculties, they said, if you say it, it must be right. And that was the test that was passed. They were given the Torah. Then what happened? So they accepted it voluntarily, so voluntarily that they were prepared even without asking what was in it to accept it. Then what happened? They moved to Sinai, and Hashem holds the mountain over them, and He says, if you don't take it, you're going to die. So the Gemara asks the obvious question, to, well, what's going on? First of all, they accept it voluntarily. When it comes to the moment of giving, he threatens them with that. Now, now, if you agree to go into a contract, and then at the moment of signing the contract, somebody holds a gun to your head while you sign, that's not legally binding. First of all, it's bizarre if you agreed, why do they have to put a gun to your head? But secondly, if you did agree, and then they do put a gun to your head, and then you sign under duress like that, that contract's not binding. So the Gemara asks the question, the Gemara that deals with the giving of the Torah says, why are we bound by the laws of the Torah? The mountain was held up. It says, there be- That's where you will be buried. He picked up the, you know, it says, tahar, under the, at the foot of the mountain. So the commentaries say, tahar, means, in, in, in loose language, it means they stood at the foot of the mountain. But it, in, in close translation, it means they stood underneath the mountain. He picked up the mountain of Sinai, he held it over them, and he said to him, you want the Torah? You don't want it? <coughs> that's it, you die. These people accepted the Torah. So the Gemara says, we shouldn't be obliged. How can we be obliged for any of the laws of the Torah if it was given under duress? Answers the Gemara, you're right. The Gemara accepts it. The Gemara says, we're not obliged. The only reason we're obliged is because at Purim we accepted it voluntarily. Purim was a time when there was no duress it was all hidden affairs, and all we chose to see and take on the obligation, even though there was no caution, Hashem never appeared openly, there were no miracles, no visible miracles, His name is not written in, and He did that in a hidden perspective, so that when we took it on, it would be a voluntary acceptance. Now, the question is like this. So that's why we're obliged. Now, there are a lot of questions. First of all, why were we obliged between Matan Torah and Purim? From Sinai till Purim was hundreds of years. The Jews were held accountable all of that time, but why? If we were only you hear the question, if we only showed that we accepted the Torah at Purim, then why did He hold us accountable and all the punishments that the Jewish people experienced from Sinai till Purim? What's going on? So let's understand this clearly. This is terribly ba- badly misunderstood, and it needs to be it needs to be clear. First of all, the Jewish people said, have an nishma," we'll take it on, we'll take it on, and then Hashem said to them when they stood at Sinai, he held the mountain over them. Why did He do that? There's a classic argument here between Toysavus and the Maral, which is an amazing thing. The Maral is much later than Toysavus, and theoretically you really can't argue with it. but he has a classic exposition of this, which is absolutely one of the great classics in Torah thinking. The Toysavus say the following thing. You know why he held the mountain over them? Listen carefully, it's fantastic, and see, see if you can see how these two answers actually mesh together. You know why he held the mountain over them? Because when they said Nasev and Ishma, they didn't know how fearsome it would be they didn't know how awful, it was fire and, 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 and they saw Hashem, they, do you know the Gemma says they died, it was so fearful they died, the Gemma and Shabbos says that when Hashem appeared to them and spoke the first of the ten commandments they died, the Neshamas flew out to Hashem and the bodies were blasted back twelve mil, outside the realm of Kedusha, you know that, the bodies were exploded backwards and the Neshamas you know why, because when Hashem appears on earth the Neshama doesn't stay in a body the body's very very lowly and, and, and paradoxical not opposite to what Hashem is. When Hashem appears, the neshama goes straight back to its source and the bodies blasted in the opposite direction. Then Hashem spoke again and they were revived. It says that Malachim sort of hobbled them back towards Sinai. Hashem spoke the second time. They exploded again. They exploded. They were human beings who exploded. The neshamas flew back to Hashem their bodies were blasted back. They were revived a third time and the Jewish people said that's enough. They said to Moshe, you hear the rest of it and tell us. We trust you. We're not going to hear it any more. It's terribly difficult to die. So Hashem said, Hey Tibash they did the right thing, and from then on we heard nothing from Hashem. We only heard from Hashem. It was an they're not just frightening, we don't it was so frightening, it was so amazingly awesome that they didn't they weren't just frightened, they didn't just faint, they exploded alike. Huh? So what they They saw Hashem. Hashem. They saw Hashem's presence on earth. What was the Shama? Every time the Shamne is such an uplift that it was I mean, but the pain of okay. leaving the body, the pain of being exploded out of a body, dying, dying, they died. So much died you right know. Yes. So much, so stuff. Do you imagine what a human being feels like as a human being when he's faced with what reality is? And that experience of disappearing as an individual? What the pain... The Gemma the, 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 so the, the fire and the... Pain being I don't know about pain, I don't know about pain, but it says that it was awesome and fearsome beyond description. There, there was fire in, there was fire and, 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 lightning and, do you know, the one says that thunder is created to, to, iron out the wrinkles in your soul. You know that? The one says the reason thunder, why is thunder created? When, when, you know, you hear a, a, a real storm, when a real storm, when you're outdoors, ever been caught outdoors in an open field during a real, real thunderstorm? A real thunderstorm, when it's happening around you. The Gemal says it's the Yasher Akmumiyot Believe me, you hear a few of those, it irons out a lot of wrinkles in your heart. A lot of things become clear at that moment. They heard thunder, can you imagine what they heard? They were totally. So the, so the Toshib say like this They accepted voluntarily, but when it came to the moment, it was so fearsome, they would have run a mile. They would have run. So Hashem said, now I'm holding you to it. I'm forcing you through this. Because you took it on voluntarily when you were of cool, sound mind. The reason you want to run now is not because you really want to run. You're just too afraid. Example. 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 I mean, the classic example is young Russians who come out of Russia now. Many of them never had a Bruce Miller. Never had a Bruce Miller? These people who work with him they explain to them all of what it means to become thing and have a breast Miller. And they agree. When it comes to the time, he had four big types to sit on them. Why? Because uh, agreeing to surgery is one thing, and you know it's good for you, but going through it, it's another problem. Your Neshama wants to go through it at that moment, but you're too afraid. So what do we do? We do the favor, do you understand? Let's say a, a person needs surgery. And they're going to die without the surgery. Do they need it? Yes. Do they agree? Yes. Do they sign? Absolutely. Then you say, okay, lie down. (laughs) So what do we do? We knock them over the head and we hold them down for the surgery. Why? We force them because it's for their good, but because they agreed. And they themselves would agree that they still agree. Only they're too afraid. Okay. So Hashem said, you want the Torah? The Jewish people said, we love the Torah. All we want is you. Hashem said, fine. Then they came to the mountain. They saw what it meant. They saw what Judaism meant. They saw the brutalities of history. They saw the, the, what Jews would go through if they didn't live up to it. And all the, the whole... He said, you agreed. He held the mountain over them." Now listen to what the morale says. That this is exquisite in its beauty. I mean, it's just... This is not wrong. This is not a, in, these, in these things, there are no arguments. There's only different facets. The morale says like this. The Jewish people accepted the Torah voluntarily, but the Torah is obligation. It had to be given as obligation. The nature of the Torah is not voluntary. Torah is one big obligation. It's a sense of obligation from beginning to end. Not <clears throat> you know what they chose? They chose to be permanently bound with no option to choose anymore after that. They chose to be held under the mountain. They chose the Torah, but what they chose was a system that they'd never be able to get out of. They didn't choose something that we choose now, maybe next week we'll change our minds. That's not Torah. Torah is obligation. But Hashem said to them, do you want the Torah? You know what he said to them? He said, I want you to choose. But if you choose, you're choosing something that's going to bind you forever with all its potential punishments and all its... That's what they... And therefore, that was the deal. What was the deal they went into? Yes, we want it. So, so he said, fine, come. And then when He gave it to them, He gave it to them as a total, incontrovertible, permanent, eternal obligation that there'd be no way ever of getting out of. That's what they wanted. They chose to be obliged. The modern concept of freedom is you choose something because you choose it next week, you choose not. Sorry! That's not, that means you were never obliged in the first place. Torah is a system that they chose voluntarily, but they chose permanent obligation. Torah's only obligation. It's not freedom. It's obligation. And therefore they said, Hashem, what we want you to do is we want you to give this and we're opting for it. We want it. You've given us the choice, yes. But we want to enter into a covenant of fire that there's no going back on. And Hashem said, fine. And He brought them into a covenant and held the mountain over them. He didn't only hold the mountain over them because they were too afraid when they saw the power and the awesomeness of it. He held the mountain over them because they were taking on Torah. When a person converts to Judaism, they can't convert out. They can't then decide a couple of years later, it's too difficult, then they convert out. It doesn't go that way. It's a one-way street. Matan Torah was the ultimate conversion. The deepest concept of Torah is that it's a binding obligation. That's what it, that, that has to be the position of the Jewish Neshama. when you go into a covenant with someone you choose a relationship you have to choose it you choose it wisely only choose those that don't need excuses to be made for them but off the commitment they have to be total that's not a relationship otherwise that's what, that's what loyalty means that's what a bond means for better or for worse life and death that's what it means you have to choose wisely you have to choose you have to choose the right option you have to choose the truth but it's a one way street you can't opt out and therefore, Mitzrayim was a situation where anything goes. There was no sense of obligation over there. Egypt was a thing that was a, you know, a, a very much parallel to our Western concept of freedom. It's whatever you want. You know, suit yourself. Help yourself. You know, it's a, Do your own thing. The Torah says, don't do your own thing. Assess for yourself what's right and true. And then bond yourself to that in a totally inextricable fashion. That's what it means. It, the first thing that's needed is a sense of structure, of discipline and organization, intellectually and personality-wise. After that, that tool has to be used to assess and opt for in a rigid and rigorously logical fashion that which is true. And then there has to be a commitment that's made, a brief, a covenant has to be made, right? To that which is true. It has to be the process of saying, I and i do it because it's right. But I'm going to do it because it's right and I'm going to become beholden and obliged to it. Yeah, that's the first step of its essence, right?